0: As a uh, former youth guy, I'm really concerned about Drew's neglect of caffeine. <laughs> Just not sure how that will work. My name is Dan Osborne, and I'm one of the pastors here at Old North, and it is a tremendous honor of mine, really, to have the privilege of opening the Word of God with you today. Uh, the Word of God is indeed the central tenet by which we grow. We read this, we grow, we change in accordance to the Spirit leading us through it, so today as we read it, a very difficult passage, let us understand that this is indeed God speaking to us that we might indeed represent him well and know him better. Let me pray for us as we read, or as we, before we begin. So Father, I thank you for this word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the reality that the word of God is living and active. The reality that as we speak and read it and think on these things that we are being transformed And so I would pray today that we would indeed be a people that is continuously transformed into your image, that we'd reflect you well to our community around us, but ultimately Father, that as we are transformed, we fall more in love with you, that the gospel is constantly on our lips, that men and women in our lives might indeed call you Savior. So Lord, as we read this passage passage today, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to the words and our hearts to the message. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are in Habakkuk. There is no shame in admitting that you have not read Habakkuk before. In fact, I'm going to have a raise of hand. No, I'm not going to do that. If, if you've never read Habakkuk before, you are in good company. If you need to use the table of contents to find it, feel free to do that. We are in Habakkuk today, chapter 2, looking at verses 6 through 20. We're continuing this series, and we got me today, and then next week, Pastor Nick will be back to wrap it up. But as we look at the book of Habakkuk, we see a nation of Israel, that, or of Judah, that is indeed in a place of crisis. What brought about the crisis for Judah? Well, there's sin. Sin always brings crisis, by the way, right? Sin always brings you to a point of self-destruction. And that's kind of what we see here with Judah, that there was a, a remnant within Judah that was indeed faithful to the call of God, but there was a mass in Judah who was indeed breaking the covenant that they had made with God. And so we have Habakkuk as the prophet going before God and asking God, how long will you put up with this? Are you not the God of the covenant? When will you make this right? You ever ask that of God? God, how long? How long? How long will you let this go? When will you make this right? And so often the case, when we approach God with those questions, we hear answers that aren't necessarily the ones that we thought we would get, nor the ones that we would like. Hence the title of the message, the series this week, or this month, is indeed Unwanted Answers. And so in the first week, Pastor Nick took us through and Habakkuk is conversing with God. How long until you... Announce judgment on the wicked and God says, I am the one who sees perfectly and knows perfectly and I will enact justice at just the right time. And then last week, Pastor Kyle took us through chapter, the remaining part of chapter 1 and the beginning part of chapter 2 and took us to a spot where as we wait for God to be faithful in his commands, as we wait for God to enact his justice, we are then to be a faithful people. Living by faith in his perfect plan, even in those, mo- those moments when you cannot see what he's doing. Which, by the way, is most of the moments. <laughs> so we are to be a people of faith as we follow our God. Which then leads us to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, by overview, is God talking, telling Habakkuk, write down these things that I am telling you that you will remember them. Keep that in mind, friends. Write these things down so that you will remember them, because we are a forgetful people. Uh, Unless we write things down to rehearse them, we will move past them. And so Habakkuk is told by God, write these things down that they might be central as you wait for my action. Because Habakkuk chapter 2, 6-20 through 20, is God telling Habakkuk, I will act, and here's why I'm going to act. Look with me now. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2, we'll read through these. We'll do a quick overview of it. We'll get to some specific application, and then we'll wrap up. But chapter 2, verse 6. Woe to the Chaldeans! Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own! For how long? And he loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, as the waters cover the sea verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation and when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. You'll notice that there's five words that are repeated over and over again in that section we just read. They're called the five woes. The five woes of Habakkuk 2. And those five woes give us the grounds by which God is indeed going to express judgment against the nation of Babylon. These five woes are the reasons that God says I will indeed judge you. They are the evidences of wickedness. They are the evidence of a wicked heart. So by quick overview, we're going to fly through these five woes real quickly. So keep up. Here we go. Verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Babylon had a a conquest mentality, right? They were a nation that entered into other nations and took over the land with a violent approach. They took what was not theirs and made it theirs, but they also went a step further. Not only did they take what wasn't theirs, they put the people who were in the land in some sort of indentured enslavement. They would loan them things, but at a high interest rate, ultimately to the point where they could not pay and put themselves in some sort of enslavement to pay off a debt they never could pay. So Babylon entered into these nations with an idea of conquest, of taking, of destroying. And then the second woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. This nation of Babylon ruled over other nations quite literally. They had cities that were high and cities that were strong and fortified. They built these things in such locations and with such materials so that they would be strong and so they could rest in their own strength. Notice the location that is used here in in Habakkuk. They set themselves a nest on high. So that other nations would have to look up, right? And see the supremacy of Babylon. There was a sense where they trusted in themselves. And the woe felt is that even though they felt secure, the very materials that they used to build their fortresses would speak out judgment against them. The next woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds its city on iniquity. This nation, Babylon, was rooted in bloodshed as they violently took over other nations and they based it off of their wickedness. They based the growth of their kingdom off of wickedness. Babylon's cruelty, Babylon's sinful pursuits, and its celebration of its wickedness. It wasn't just being wicked, it was celebrating the wickedness upon which they based everything off of. That set them in firm opposition to God. But I want to pause here. Verses 13 and 14 is kind of an interlude here. It's kind of a pause moment where God says, let's pause for a second. Write this down regarding what it is, uh, what my hand in this is. And so he says in verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? It's interesting because what God is saying is, I am the one who frustrates the plans of these wicked nations. I am the one who causes them, even as they conquer, to not be satisfied in their conquering. They labor merely for fire. Things will burn up. They will not be be content. They weary themselves for nothing at the end. And so I think one of the things that we could pause here, and we're not going to spend much time, but we can talk briefly about the frustrations of wickedness, right? Right? The frustrations of sinfulness. That as you sin, you think it will give you things that it will not give you. It cannot give you. You think it will give you the completed heart that you hope you would have, but it doesn't. All it does is lead to emptiness and restlessness. And that's a gift of God, by the way. That he does not leave you to be satisfied with your sin. That he causes you to be in a spot of unrest in your sin so that you might indeed search out the one who is the one who satisfies your soul. I think of Augustine here, one of the great church fathers. He says, our hearts are restless. If you know this, you know the rest of it. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So that's an interlude there. And then we jump back to the woes. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon. Babylon would enter into nations and and literally would indeed cause these people to drink, to become drunk on that which they provided, which would indeed weaken them, which would lower their inhibitions. And then they they would shame them by gazing upon them as they were inebriated. Metaphorically, this nation also poured out their cups upon nations. Not just of alcohol, but they poured out their cups of wrath. They were merciless. They were violent. They would strip away not just the people, but they would strip away the resources of every land they went into. That's why the author here makes reference to Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its beautiful cedars. Well, when Babylon entered into Lebanon, they tore down the cedars. They stripped the land barren of the beautiful cedars. And that's why God says the woe upon them is his cup being poured on them. His cup of wrath. And then lastly, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Babylon was known for idolatry, right? They were known for their one main god, a god named Marduk. And they would take Marduk with them and they would set up a shrine in every city they conquered, and they would have to make new Mardukes for other cities. And so the woe to them is that they cannot see that Marduk is simply the material that they made him with and nothing more. That Marduk is not living. In fact, in verse 18, we are told uh, by the author here that when a metal image is simply a teacher of lies, as you worship this metal image, you are living a life of dishonesty. There is no more futile existence than to live a life based on lies. Which then wraps up this whole segment with verse 20, where God contrasts his reality versus the reality of an idol. The contrast is really striking, because here we have an idol that is not living, but we think is living. But then we have God, the king, sitting on a throne in his holy temple. And the only response among humanity is to be silent at the holy God in his holy temple and God tells Habakkuk that not only will Judah and Babylon be silent before him, but all of the earth will be silent upon, in front of him on the day of his judgment, on the day of his holy judgment. And the contrast, don't miss this, is really intriguing. As humanity in the verses previous clamors for their idols to speak, they want their idols to speak, but the idols are silent. Here we see God in his holy temple speaking. And humanity is silent. Kind of turning things the other way. God is speaking in this passage, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. And what is it that God is speaking? What is it that he wants Habakkuk to gain from this letter that he's telling him to write down? He's telling him that God is going to judge the wicked. Now, one of the easiest things for us to do is to stand back from this passage All these years later, and say, Well, thankfully we're not Babylon. Whew. Thankfully, we are not this wicked. But I want you to notice something here about this passage. The only time that the Chaldeans are mentioned is in the title before chapter or before verse six begins. The rest of this reading, the only word of specificity that is given is the word him. Woe to him. And that's on purpose. Because this passage does not just speak to the judgment of God against Babylon, but this passage speaks to the judgment against any nation or any man who sets themselves up in opposition to God's holy command and holy rule. And so specifically, let's pull back a bit. Let's look at these woes, not in the language applied to Babylon, but let's look at the principle of what each of these woes represent. And we'll do this quick, so hang with me. Woe number one, greed. They were a nation of acquisition at the expense of others. They wanted more and more and more and more. Thankfully, we're not greedy people. You guys should be laughing because we are. We absolutely are a greedy people. Greed is one of the things that we struggle with in this country particularly. We're used to a certain standard of accumulation, and what can indeed happen is that then those things that we accumulate accumulate us. And we need more of them, and we want more of them, hoping that the more that we get, the more that we have, the better we are. I think of Rockefeller, his famous quote, How much money is enough? Anyone know what the rest of it? Just a little more. You never have enough of the things of this world to satisfy. Greed. This is why Christ taught the difficulties of wealth. As you live with a life, a mentality of acquiring things, Christ says, listen, how difficult is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's not sinful to acquire but it is sinful when those things that you own acquire your heart and that's the essence of greed. The second woe they, said they had evil gain to set their nests on high. What is this about? Well, that's pride. That's living with a reality that you control yourself, that you are the master of your domain. Your security, your future is dependent upon your ability to give both of those things. And so the focus of your life is on what you can do. You have set your nest on high, high, on the, high above the troubles that befall other people. You are your own master. That's what is being spoken of here. The sin of pride. James talks about this in James 4.16. He says, when you live with that reality, when you boast about your ability to control life, when you make plans apart from God, that, all such boasting is evil pride. Woe three, woe number three, they found a city on bloodshed and iniquity. Love of sin is this woe, the love of sin. I've got a question that I want you to consider. How much of our lives are rooted in the love and cultivating and justification of our sin? How much of our lives are rooted in the love and cultivating and justification of our sin? That's really the truth about our reality. When we're honest, we admit that. Much of our life is built around making sure that we can keep a little corner of our life in a sinful pursuit. The, the area that we kind of justify a bit, we, we, we justify it by comparing ourselves, not to God's standard, but by comparing ourselves to other sinners, <laughs> Well, thankfully, I'm not as bad as that person or I'm not as sinful as the guy I just read about in the paper. That guy, wow, he's a real sinner. He must be from Babylon. No, we compare ourselves to others rather than God's holy standard and therefore we indeed enter into a reality where we love our sin. Woe number four. The nation of Babylon got their other nations drunk and gazed at their nakedness and that's a literal translation there. They did indeed do that. They were a nation of immorality, and we too have entered into an existence of immorality where we value pleasure rather than holiness. The basis of immorality is, that the, is the lie that in immorality there's pleasure that your heart is searching for, yet we know that when we live in a moral life, it's a black hole of shame, and that's what is happening really in our culture today and sadly has impacted Christianity through and through. We've even witnessed some of this in the recent revelations of some church leaders. We have become an immoral people. Woe number five. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Well, that's an easy one, right? Woe number five, idolatry. Just as the Babylonians created this reality of their own gods out of wood and out of iron, we create our gods on a daily basis. But our gods aren't necessarily idols we set up in our homes. They are things that we guard our hearts against or to. We surrender to them on a daily basis. That might be your job. It might be finances. It might be your family. It might be something that in and of itself isn't evil. But the way in which you engage it has set it above God's rule in your life. And thereby you have become an idolater. So when we take it this way, when we look at it with these five points, we see that it is entirely possible for us to be on a level playing field with Babylon with regards to our wickedness. And as Babylon did, we are setting ourselves up in opposition to God's kingdom in that same way. And as we set ourselves up in opposition to God's kingdom like Babylon did, then these woes that God utters against Babylon, guess who else he utters them against? You and I, when we are in our sinful state. Paul talks about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Because of our hard and impenitent heart, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of God's judgment. On the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. So just as God's judgment was expressed against the wickedness of Babylon, when we live apart from God's way and order, we are pitting ourselves against God just as they did, and God's woes are expressed to you and I. Woe to us today in this room at Old North Church who live in opposition to the almighty and holy God. Woe to us. For we are living in the judgment of the holy God. And Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is indeed a terrible, terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't talk about God's judgment that often, do we? Specifically from the pulpit, we don't. It's not a regular occurrence to attend the church and, and hear a message about God's judgment, mainly because we are scared of it. Resentful of it, we don't understand it. We think it doesn't necessarily draw people in, and so what we have sadly done in the church is that we have made the judgment of God a disposable topic. We've disposed of it. We've made God a God of love, which He is, to the expense of His judgment, though, to where we've we've created a God really in our own image. So I want us to pause for a second here as we move into a point of application, I want us to understand why it's important that God is a God of judgment. Why is he a God of judgment? And why is his love determined on his judgment? It's a really gigantic question. I'm just going to touch on one point with it right now, though. And that point is this. God's love and his judgment are connected. You cannot separate the two of them. God's love and his judgment are connected. You cannot separate them. Here's what I mean. So many of us think that God's love and God's judgment are two separate and independent realities. That they may even be opposed to each other. Well, in all reality, God's judgment and his love are connected at the cross, right? At the cross of Jesus Christ, you have the hatred of God as he spends his wrath, his judgment, on the sin of humanity. God is not having a temper tantrum that day. He's not upset. His judgment is spent on the sin of humanity. Those wages that we have earned in our sin, God is now judging. But why is he judging? Because of his immense love for his holiness and his glory as he redeems the sinful being. His love and his judgment intersect at the cross. And the second that we remove judgment from who God is, the love of God becomes hollow and impersonal. The love of God becomes weak. The love isn't even truly of God. God must indeed be a God of judgment, a God of wrath, and a God of love. Peter Jensen has this to say about the wrath and the judgment of God. The wrath of God is as real as your sin. The only thing which can satisfy the wrath of God is a satisfaction paid for your sin provided by God himself. Jesus has done this by dying for you on the cross, saving you from the wrath to come. Whether we like it or not, that is the heart of the gospel. Turn the wrath of God into something else or ignore it and you will not have Christianity but some other religious look-alike. Friends, the wrath, the judgment of God is central to the gospel it's central to the gospel for out of the wrath and judgment of God comes the love of God as he redeems the sinful soul so back to Habakkuk God presents himself in verses 6-20 through as a God of judgment a God who will indeed judge wickedness and one of the things that we need to ask ourselves here as we read scripture any scripture by the way is what characteristic of God is he revealing to us and why is he revealing that characteristic to us Because that is what scripture is. It is God revealing his character to us that we might indeed worship and be transformed by it. So in this passage, God is presenting himself, his characteristic of judgment to Habakkuk. And what is it that he's hoping Habakkuk would receive by presenting himself in such? He's hoping Habakkuk will then receive hope. Hoping that God's judgment will come. There is hope in God's judgment. And that is a reality for us today. And this is the application of this passage. For the child of God, there is hope in the judgment of God. I'm going to say it again because it might be counterintuitive. For the child of God, there is hope in the judgment of God. And there are two levels of judgment, of hope, that we can experience when considering God's judgment. The first is this. The revealed and finalized judgment of God. The revealed and finalized judgment of God. For the child of God, there is so much reality of hope in God's judgment pronounced at the cross of Jesus Christ. Those of us in this room who look at our lives and look at our sin honestly and say, I am greedy, I am prideful, I am immoral, I love sin, I'm an idolater. And confess those things to the almighty God. We recognize the evil that is in that. We turn from it and we celebrate the completed work of Christ upon the cross. God's judgment has indeed been spoken upon you finally. And that judgment is this. Upon your confession, upon your surrender, you have been judged righteous. The hope Of God's judgment is that at the cross, He sees not you and your sin, but He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a tremendously deep and robust theological concept called justification. It's where God has transferred from you, you from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, not because of your doing, but because of His gracious work on your behalf at the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice that it is revealed and finalized. This is why Christ was upon the cross and he said, it is finished. What is finished? Your justification. Your transfer from darkness into light. Look at what Christ said here in John chapter 5, verse 24. The words of our Savior himself. He says this regarding our salvation. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, don't ever let this verse be read with a ho-hum mentality. Read this with the eyes of a sinner who has been brought to life. Read this through the eyes of a sinner who has now been undeservingly so spent or placed into a spot of righteousness before the holy and almighty God. And so we read that, you have passed from death to life. What an amazing reality for us. And it's what Paul continues to talk about in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Best line in all of scripture right here, and such were some of you, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Friends, listen to me. For the child of God, the hope of God's judgment is that he has looked upon you in your surrender and said you are righteous. Through and through. Completely and totally. And that should present hope as we consider the finalized judgment of God. So the child of God, in this room, you have hope when considering God's judgment based on what he did on the cross, you also have another element of hope. You have hope in the promised and not yet judgment of God. The promised and not yet judgment of God. What am I talking about here? Well, I'm referring to what we call the day, capital D. The day. The day when God's kingdom is ultimately delivered and when all wickedness is undone. So before church began, before this service began, some of you were in here early. And you know what happens on the screen, right? What, there's, there's a countdown. And first service, I was sitting here and was waiting for service to begin, watching the countdown. And I kept thinking as seconds ticked by, well, we're one second closer to the day. <laughs> Yay, right? Right? There's a reality that the day is going to happen. There's a reality that as you live, as you breathe, as you exist, you are growing closer and closer to the day when God's kingdom will be ultimately finalized upon this place. His judgment will indeed be given to all humanity. This day is a day of joy beyond anything you can imagine. But it's also a day of terror. A day of terror for those in this room, in this community, who are not a child of God. This day is a very real day. It's a certain and sure day because God is a God who keeps his word. He is a God who is a promise keeper. He is faithful and true. So, what he says will indeed take place. This day will indeed take place. And let's look at what this day is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. John the Revelator there says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. There should be a sense of somberness as we read this. Some of us in this room probably have like a little upset stomach right now. Number one, this is a reality that our minds can't comprehend when things are finally said and done. And we maybe might consider ourselves to be in one of these two categories. For there's only two people presented here in this passage of Revelation. There's only two categories of people those whose name was written in the book of life, those who have indeed been justified by the work of Jesus Christ, and those who stood in willful opposition against him. That's it. Those are the two categories of people on that day. For the former, those who are surrendered to Christ and justified by his work on our behalf, this day is a day of hope realized. It's a day where your Savior and your Creator looks upon you and says, well done, enter into rest. Rest. And for the other, those of us in this room who have not surrendered to Christ, this is a day where you will experience the full wrath of God as you stood in opposition to Him your whole life. The wages of your sin will be felt in that moment. How is this hope realized for those who are a child of God? What will that hope look like? John the Revelator keeps going in Revelation 21 verses three through four, to paint a picture for those who are a child of God, what this looks like. And John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Here's what God does for his children. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What is the hope we have as a child of God? The former things have passed away. And God, your creator, this struck me this week when I was reading it. God, the creator, God himself, will be our God. And who is it that will wipe the tears from our eyes? God himself. The intimate interaction with you as his child at the moment of this day should be felt if you are a child of God right now. That there will be a day when my father touches my face to let me know that I am his child. And that should bring tremendous hope to us as we think on that day when we are a child of God. But it not only means that we wait for that day to happen. It means that we live in that hope on a daily reality. Here's what hoping for the day looks like on a day-by-day basis. This is where we get application out of. It means this. It means that we need not fear the wickedness that is in our world. We look at the world and we're, we're concerned about the state of the world, aren't we? We're concerned about the wickedness in this world and whether or not it might indeed overwhelm us. Friends, because of the judgment of God, as we've read in Habakkuk and his promises to Habakkuk and throughout the rest of scripture, we can rest knowing that there will be a day when God makes everything right. Therefore, we can rest, rest in that, that he will, experience, he will give us victory on that day over wickedness. If you're anxious about the state of wickedness, recite to yourself the reality that God will indeed have that day. It also means that we as children of God now have the freedom to forgive as we walk on this earth. If God is going to make things right, then we do not need to fight to make them right right now. We do not need to fight the wicked. We do not need to be on a crusade to fight the wicked. We should oppose the wrong for sure, but our life is not meant to be spent in vengeance, as we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. I think a really clear example of this was experienced the world over, by the way, on January 8th of 1956. On January 8th, 1956, it was a tremendous day of anticipation for five missionaries in Ecuador, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Roger Yadorain, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley. These five missionaries had been trying to connect with a cannibalistic tribe there called the Aka Indians. And finally, on January 8th, they were going to have a day of connection with them that had been built up for days previous. And so they were really excited about this day. And so the Indians started coming to the beach where the missionaries were. And some of you know this story. As the Indians came out, two of the Indians were across the river. And Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming started to wade across the river to them. And as they waded across the river to those Indians that were over there, the three remaining missionaries stayed back on the shore, but Jim and Pete were waiting. And as they waited, they heard a scream behind them, and they turned around, and each one of them experienced a spear through their chest as the Indians attacked them. The Aka Indians killed all five of those missionaries that day on the beach there in Ecuador. And what's stunning about that story is that these missionaries each had, a, had guns, had weapons. But they didn't fire upon the Indians. Why? Because they had made a commitment to each other that they could not kill those who did not know Jesus Christ to preserve themselves. And so, on that day, they willingly took the spear, quite literally, In order that these people might indeed not experience the judgment of God. Later on, Nate Saint went back in 1996. Nate Saint, um, I'm sorry, Nate Saint's son went back to the village in 1996. This village is now a Christian village, a village that is a missionary sending village to other nations, other villages there in that area. And so Nate Saint's son went back to meet with those who actually killed his father and the four other missionaries. And he sat with them and he talked with them and and the Indians told him that one of the most striking things about that day, because the one of the gentlemen who actually killed those missionaries was there, he said one of the most striking things that day was that they did not fight back. Because these missionaries did not fight back, this Indian told Nate Saint's son, because they did not fight back, the Indians let Elizabeth Elliot and a couple other missionaries come and live there and share the gospel. Friends, because God is indeed going to have the day where things shall be made right, we no longer need to be a people of vengeance. We should be living lives marked by the hope of God, not by revenge for our own kingdom. God's day allows for that reality. And lastly, this is the common sense application. If there is going to be that day, then we should be active in evangelizing about that day. We should be active in identifying those that God has put in your life who are not in that spot of surrender to God and speaking the good news of the gospel to them with great and active urgency. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, Ezekiel tells the Israelites. We should have that same mantra as we engage our friends and our family who are in the place of God's judgment. If you believe this day to be true. How selfish is it of us not to share the good news of the gospel? Some of us think, well, this day is never going to happen, right? We have thought this day was going to occur from a long time ago. It seems like it's never going to happen. Well, in 2 Peter, Peter tells the church there that he was writing to That God is not slow in keeping his promises, but rather he's patient. He's patient so that all will have the opportunity to repent. There's two audiences in this room today. Two. Those who are a child of God and hear this message and think in their hearts, I am grateful for the work of God. And then there's the other audience of you in this midst who maybe are not sure of where you stand before God right now. If that day were to happen right now, where would you be in the presence of God? Would you be one who experiences the hope of that day or would you be one who experiences the terror of that day? And I have tremendous news for you. If you find yourself in that spot where you're not sure where you're at with God, In his grace, he had you in this room right now. In his grace, he had you in this room to hear the message of salvation that you might indeed surrender and become a child of hope. So I want to extend to us all right now this reality where we can, as a child of God, hope in that day and be active in living to that day. And if you are not a child of God, today could be, should be, will be that day of your salvation. I can think of no better day to enter into the kingdom of God, then on August 12, 2018, <laughs> may today be that day for you. God's judgment over wickedness, God's judgment over wickedness is the rest that soothes the soul of the child of God. And for the child of God, there is tremendous hope in that realized and promised judgment of Christ, of God upon Christ on the cross. It is finished, it is completed, you are a child of God. If you are not a child of God, if you are concerned about your spot with God, your salvation, today could be, should be the day of your salvation. Let us live with anticipation, right? Let us live with joy, but let us live with surrender. Let us pray. So Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray specifically for those in this room who might feel the tug of your spirit in their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the boldness to surrender. I pray that you would grant them the boldness to speak your name and surrender. I pray for those of us in this room who are are children of God, that you would create within us a joy, a celebratory feeling and emotion in response to your great work on our behalf that our lives would be marked not with revenge or vengeance, but would be marked with forgiveness. Would be marked with life. Would be marked with the gospel. So Lord, thank you for Habakkuk, this amazing illustration of your judgment on wickedness and what it means for your people. Lord, as we close out, I pray that you would fill this room with your praise. May we sing loud as we celebrate our need for you in your provision for our need. For we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.